We're talking about nativity, which is really the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ. And we're diving in to kind of really experience what that was like by getting into the lives of some people who were there. Last week we talked about the shepherds. This week we're going to look at nativity through the life and through the eyes of a guy named Joseph. So if you have your Bibles this morning, pull them out. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 21 and then 24 and 25. Nativity through the life of Joseph. Here's what Matthew tells us. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. I want to start today uh, with a phrase that we read about Joseph in verse 19. Um, Right off the top, we're told some things about Joseph, the kind of man that he was. And it says this, it says, Because Joseph, her husband, that's Mary's husband, was faithful to the law. Some translations um, say because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. And there's a whole lot wrapped up in that phrase, righteous or faithful to the law. You see, one of the very first things we learn about Joseph is that he takes the law of God very seriously. Joseph was known for his uncompromising obedience to the scriptures, to the law of Moses, to the Old Testament. In other words, Joseph was the kind of first century Jew who did not eat unclean foods, who didn't mix with the wrong kinds of people. He didn't keep his carpentry shop open on Sabbath to make a few extra bucks. Joseph was faithful. He was righteousness, or he was righteous, and everyone knew this about him. But now Joseph has a problem. What's his problem? We're told in verse 18 that the girl he has promised to marry is going to have a baby, and whoever the father is, Joseph knows it's not him. Furthermore, Nazareth, the place that Joseph and Mary are from, it's a small town and people in small towns tend to know a lot about the business of everybody else in their small town. I'll never forget the time that Amy and I um, lived in Minneapolis. We lived up in the Minneapolis area when we were first married and we would go down to visit her grandmother. Amy's folks were raised in um, two small towns in northwest Iowa and we'd go down to visit her grandma in Rock Falls. 
this cute little, very quaint North Iowa town, and we'd just go down for the weekend to sit and play cards and visit and eat good grandma food. That was the whole point of our visit. I don't think we'd even leave the house. And yet something would happen when we would go down there. Quite often, we would end up in the newspaper. Seriously, like you would make like the Rock Falls Gazette or whatever it was called. It was like extra, extra, read all about it. Mary Hansen's granddaughter and her husband came to town. They played cards, they ate pie, you know, like it was a swell little shindig. I mean, amazing. See, the point is this, there's not a lot happening in the small town all the time. And so people knew what was happening, And Nazareth is a small town a lot like that. There's actually a picture, kind of an artist's rendition of what first century Nazareth would have looked like. This is a small place. And a righteous guy from this small place now has a pregnant fiancé. Do you think word is traveling fast? You bet it is. And you bet it will. One of the things, you know, we often do at Christmas is is jump to the end of the story. We like to sort of leap through the story of the nativity, the story of Christmas, so we can get to the end because we know what's coming and we know the end is so good. Because of that, we rush. We rush through the mire and the muck and the conflict to get to the good stuff. But today I want to suggest that we stop, that we camp out a bit, in Nazareth, that we sink into this story and walk in Joseph's shoes, imagining how he felt for a moment, because maybe it's there, maybe it's down in the mire, maybe it's in this little town of Nazareth where we'll actually find the real good stuff. You're a young man, and your whole reputation, your whole identity revolve around one thing, your faithfulness to the law, your passion and desire and commitment to follow God. Whatever Torah says to do, you do, because that's who you are and that's who you've been. That's at the very core of your life and personhood. And friends, if that were the case, you'd know this. The law has some very clear instructions for Joseph in this moment about what to do with somebody in Mary's condition. Someone who turns up pregnant outside of the marriage relationship. And if you read the Old Testament, friends, passages like Deuteronomy 22 or Numbers 5, sexual unfaithfulness in the Old Testament was dealt with in an extremely swift and harsh way. In other words, the message would have been clear. Joseph, if you are truly righteous, if you are the kind of man who is faithful to the law, then you will expose and punish Mary for her grievous sexual sins. That's what's expected of you because that's what righteous people do. We expose sin. We don't let it just slide. We don't just sweep it under the rug. That would have been the very clear and predominant thinking In Joseph's day, look with me at verse 19. It says this, it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. When we read that verse, it sounds like Joseph's righteousness is what pushes him towards mercy. 
It's like she really deserves this severe punishment. But because he was righteous, he shows mercy. But the way this sentence is actually written in the original language, in the Greek, it's not that clear. It's far more ambiguous. In fact, Don Hagner, one of the top scholars in the book of Matthew, says the best translation of this verse would actually go something like this. Although Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace, so he had in mind to divorce divorce her quietly. You see, the idea isn't that because Joseph is considered righteous, it's in spite of the fact that people see him as righteous. In spite of that fact, he's going to spare Mary public humiliation. Because again, in first century Israel, the way that people thought about righteousness, righteousness would have demanded that she be exposed that that sin be dealt with. Friends, we are so used to thinking about righteousness from our own vantage point that we miss how they would have thought about it then. Do not underestimate the amount of pressure, the amount of righteous pressure Joseph would have been under here. Family pressure. His parents saying, you must not marry this girl. His siblings, social pressure from his friends, religious pressure from the spiritual leaders, people talking to him about God's standards and will and purity and religion. The very clear righteous choice here is to expose this girl for who she is, and yet in the end, Joseph cannot do it. He cannot bring himself to expose her. You see, the Bible doesn't tell us for how long, but I imagine he agonized over this decision for days, maybe even weeks. How many times did he play it out in his mind? How many times did he wade through and walk down all of the options? How many sleepless nights? How many times did he decide the path he was going to take only to change his mind once again? Because something we often miss in this story is the fact that when the angel comes to Joseph, he already knows that Mary's pregnant, doesn't he? Like The angels in the Christmas story announce a lot of things. They reveal a lot of information. When the angel shows up in Joseph's life, he already has the information. And that raises a question. How did he find out? You ever thought about this? Who would have told him? Who would have told him that Mary was pregnant? Mary. Mary would have told him, probably in secret, probably some secret, private rendezvous. But dive for a minute into that conversation, because, friends, this is real life. Your young fiancé, probably 13 or 14 years old, comes to you and says, I have some bad news and some good news. The bad news is I'm pregnant. The good news is I haven't slept with anybody. In fact, an angel came to me and said that God is the one who made me pregnant and this baby is going to be his special son. Surprise! Isn't that great? What do you imagine... Joseph's initial response was shock, disappointment, anger, 
rage? Did he yell? Did he scream at her? Did he rebuke her? Did he weep? You know, I wonder if she cried when she told him. How much did she beg and plead for him to believe her? How much did he want to? You see, we don't know exactly how that conversation went, but we know that there was one. And in the end, Joseph can't buy it. He just cannot believe her story, and so he determines to divorce her quietly. And maybe he felt like he was being merciful, that he was showing grace and compassion by not dragging her out into the middle of town and shaming her publicly. But he says, I can't be a part of this. You see, in that world, betrothal was an official public commitment that could only be dissolved through divorce. But one way or another, Joseph decides that he will separate himself from this girl so that he can maintain his status in the community as a righteous man. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. First off, there's a word right at the beginning of this verse that I've read past so many times. It's the word after. Here's a question. Why does God make Joseph wait? I mean, couldn't an angel have come to him ahead of time? Couldn't an angel have come two or three months earlier, explained everything so that Joseph didn't have to go through all this stress and struggle and doubt and worry? Couldn't an angel have saved he and Mary all that heartache and pain? Yeah. But maybe struggle removal is not God's number one goal for Joseph here. Maybe relieving Joseph's stress and anxiety is not God's primary purpose. And maybe it's not his primary purpose for you and me either. You see, maybe God actually wanted Joseph to have to wrestle with what he thought a righteous man should do. Maybe he wanted Joseph to struggle and grapple with what does it really mean to be righteous. Maybe right at the beginning of this story, before Jesus is even out of the womb, God is preparing humanity for a whole new understanding of that word. Maybe God is saying, now we'll start to discover what righteousness truly is, what it really looks like. And he starts first and foremost with this guy, Joseph. You see, God often does this in our lives, doesn't he? He allows tension He allows stress. He allows pain and anxiety and struggle because he knows that these are often the key avenues towards growth. Friends, let me ask you this morning. Is it possible that maybe, maybe even in your life right now, if you're stressed or struggling or confused or disoriented or uncertain, it's not just that something's gone terribly wrong. Maybe God is setting you up to learn something. Maybe God is setting you up for growth. And maybe what he's asking you to do is to trust him, to just keep on praying and walking 
the path of righteousness that he's put before you. And that's exactly what he asked Joseph to do, and that's exactly what Joseph does. Notice, notice the angel says, Joseph, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid for what? Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Here's another question you may not have thought of before. What do you think Joseph's afraid of here? What's his big fear in this story? Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What's he afraid of? I'll tell you what I think he's afraid of. Joseph would be afraid of losing his reputation. He would be afraid of what everybody would think about him. You see, Joseph could hardly believe this story himself, let alone all the people from town. And Joseph knew how this story would play out because he had seen it before. He knows where this road leads. His friends would never accept the account of what happened. Hey guys, you know, I know she's pregnant and all, but an angel came. It was divine consent. Yeah, sure, Joseph, right. And here's the real truth. He and Mary would no longer be invited to their homes. His family would suffer by just being associated with him. His business would suffer. He would never again be admired or respected and people would glance and whisper and point for the rest of his life. You see, Joseph's afraid because he all too well understands this. If I commit myself to this pregnant girl and her baby, there will be a lifetime of enormous unending consequences. In fact... Most of the hopes and dreams that I have planned for myself, they will not come to pass. They will die. But Joseph decides to do it. He decides to walk this road anyway. And it says, Joseph did what the angel had commanded him. And specifically, he does two things in verses 24 and 25. First, it says, he took Mary home as his wife. That's a legal step. It meant he was publicly claiming her as his wife. Then it says he named the baby. This too, again, is a legal action. In the act of naming this child, Joseph is publicly adopting him as his son. So in a very public and legal way, Joseph has now deliberately tied his destiny to the lives of two people with significantly stained reputations. His days of being known as a righteous man, they're now over. No more. Whatever the future has for him, it will no longer be a life of respect and adoration, at least not around Nazareth. You know, if you fast forward in the Gospels into the life of Jesus, you get a glimpse of this. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is now a grown man, probably in his early 30s. So we've just fast forwarded 30 years from this moment where, where Joseph is taking Mary as his wife and Jesus as his adopted son. We're 30 years down the road and now Jesus is out and he's doing ministry and he's traveling the countryside and he's preaching and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God in powerful ways and he's performing miracles and people are being healed And the buzz around Jesus is starting to grow. And then in Mark chapter 6, Jesus shows up someplace. Where does Jesus show up? Nazareth. He's now back in his hometown. And the people are blown away. They're amazed by all he's saying and all he's doing. But then, all of a sudden, in verse 3, something is said. 
someone says, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? You see, a man in Israel was always referred to as the son of his father. Always the son of his father, not his mother, but not here. Not in Nazareth, not in his hometown, not where they knew the story of his birth. You see, to refer to a man in the first century only as the son of his mother was in that day and age a very harsh and insulting expression. In essence, in essence, we miss it. It seems so sort of benign to us. But in essence, this is what is said. And and pardon my language for just this moment. The person says, isn't this just the bastard son of that whore, Mary? That's the spirit behind this remark. You see, you're amazed at what he's doing. You're amazed at what he's saying. You're amazed at what he's doing. But I know who he really is. We all remember who his mom and dad really are. He's nothing. You see, friends, that's what Mark 6.3 is all about. The story of Jesus' birth still lives on. In Nazareth, they still, 30 years later, haven't forgotten. Here's the point. Here's the point. Don't miss it. Even decades later, Joseph's reputation would still not have recovered from this marriage. He didn't give up his reputation for a few months until everyone forgot. Decades later, and the people are still talking about it and throwing it in his face. 30 years later, and there's still stigma attached to Joseph's name. You know what really blew me away this week as I've thought about Joseph and sat with him and walked with him? It's that Jesus, his adopted son, who would be called a friend of sinners, was raised in a family that knew firsthand what it felt like to be regarded in the spiritually second-class category. You ever think about that? You ever think about the fact that Jesus grew up teased, made fun of, that he grew up feeling the judgment of all the other kids and families in town, that he watched his dad not get treated the same as all the other dads? I wonder how it went the first time he asked him, when he finally got old enough to notice it and feel it. Why, Dad? Why do they treat us this way? Why do they say those things about you? You see, friends, maybe part of why Jesus had such a heart for unrespectable people is that he was raised in a family by a father who sacrificed his respectability for his son. Maybe one reason Jesus had so much compassion for women, women who to society were nothing more than walking scandals, is that he knew what it meant to his mom that his father had stuck by her when she was single and pregnant and vulnerable and alone. When all the righteous folks had said, hit the road, Jesus watched a man he called Father stick around. And Jesus saw that it cost him something. I think of how Jesus, as he was growing up and hearing the story of his parents and understanding it more, how he must have admired his dad's courage so much. You see, maybe it's no accident that Jesus grew up to teach things like this. For I tell you, 
then unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus understood what real righteousness looked like, and he said those words, and I wonder if as he made those statements, he was thinking, I've seen the better kind of righteousness firsthand. My father was such a man. See, maybe God had a reason for this odd, painful, lonely way to start a family. Maybe this whole thing wasn't just an accident. Maybe God still, to this day even, calls people who are willing to die to reputation and status and comfort for the sake of receiving Him, for the sake of following Him, for the sake of love. Maybe God calls us still today to walk the same road He asked Joseph to walk so many years ago. See, friends, it's crazy to think that Joseph, when he made the decision to wed Mary, he thought it was the end of his reputation as a righteous man. At that time, I do not think he fully knew that the child he would adopt would bring a new kind of righteousness to the entire human race. What do we learn from Joseph, friends? We learn about real righteousness. We learn about righteousness that doesn't just impress the people around us, that doesn't just look religious, but that actually reflects the heart of God. We learn about righteousness that calls for sacrifice and difficulty and struggle and character. You see, when we look at the life of Joseph, we see so much more than a happy couple with a newborn baby. We see a guy who said, I'll give my life. I'll give everything I've wanted, everything I'm about to follow you, Lord, to do your will and walk in your ways. This week, um, I was talking about preaching on Joseph and Michelle Winter said, I've got a picture for you. I want to just show you. And she showed me this picture and I said, that picture is exactly what I'm trying to say in this sermon. It's exactly it. It's in your bulletin today, but we're going to put it on the screen pictures of this couple sometime after the birth of Christ. And what struck me about this picture is the look on Joseph's face, the weight of sacrifice, the price of righteousness, how he carried so much more than people often give him credit for. And how in the midst of that struggle, he looked at the one who would overcome and give him hope in the midst of all of those struggles. His son, who would also sacrifice, who would also give it all for all of humanity, that we might find real righteousness, not in our own behavior, but in God's grace and mercy. So friends, this morning, I just want to give you a little time before we rush out of here to just sit. To sit with this picture, to sit with Joseph to enter into his story and say, God, what do you need to teach me from him? What do you need to teach me from this man? What do you want to tell me about who you are and about your son and about this Christmas holiday this morning? And so just sit with Joseph today. Talk to God about the kind of righteousness that he longs for you to have. Maybe there's some sacrifices you need to make. Maybe there's some thinking that needs to change. Maybe there's some scandalous people in your life that you've been tempted because of righteousness to reject, and yet God is saying, embrace them, love them, and move towards them. Not in spite of righteousness, but because of the new righteousness offered in Christ. 
So sit with this picture, sit with this man, and then when you're ready, come to the table to receive the bread and the cup. And there'll be people on the sides that would love to pray with you. If there are struggles that seem bigger than you right now, if you're facing something in your life and you think, I do not know what God is up to, remember Joseph. Remember his struggles. Remember the fact that he could not see the end or the outcomes, and yet God was always at work. That's who our God is. He's always at work. So come to the table when you're ready. If you need prayer, go receive the blessing of being prayed for from folks. But take a minute. Sit with this. Allie and the worship team are just going to play for a bit. When you're ready, the tables are open. Take the elements back to your seat and receive them on your own. I'll pray for us and then just give you some time today. Father, thank you for... using real people like Joseph. I thank you for this man. I thank you for who he was and all that he did. And yet in the midst of it, Lord, we see his own brokenness and his own frailty and and you used him, which tells me, Lord, you can use us. As we enter into his story, Lord, may we find your righteousness, may we find your grace and hope and peace in the same way that he did. May we find it in your son. That's our prayer. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.